Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where Sarah Palin recently kicked off her nationwide book tour. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM, Ada, Grand Rapids, or you can listen streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio, my fellow doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Yellow. And Dr. Luke Galen. That's more like it. We also have a special guest with us this week, uh, Jamie DeLue, who is not yet a doctor, but will be soon. Hi. Normally you live in Wichita, Kansas. We can have my doctor in Wichita. Do they study science in Kansas? They lose all their advanced degree people to immigration outside the state. That's right. Well, speaking of science and science education, Sarah Palin, who was just in town here um, starting her nationwide tour. And by the way, have you seen the list of stops she has on her nationwide tour? She knows where she's going. It's, it's Absolutely. She's playing to the crowd. It's no, she's not going to Berkeley she's or She's not Ann going Arbor. to New York. She's not going to L.A. She's going to, to red counties, including our very own Kent County in West Michigan. Yeah, she started here. This was her first date, actually less than a mile from where we record the show. Absolutely. And people were camped out all night waiting to get a chance to see Sarah Palin before the event. White people were camped out the night before the event. True, but white people are people too. Yeah, well, most of the time. It was either the the lineup at, you know, at the crockery store or the Sarah Palin that, thing. That's right. I was telling Ed Brayton that I thought about going out and trying to pass around sterility drugs. Too late. They're already doing their quiverfuls, so Yeah, that's true. That's right. Anyway, uh, back to Sarah Palin. One of the things in her book uh, is she is addressing the issue of her views on evolution. She uses, as she puts it, the C word. Costco? Creationism. And she claims that this caused quite a stir with McCain strategist Steve Schmidt when she admitted to not believing in evolution. The, The way she puts it is that Schmidt asked her, well, your your father's a, a biology teacher, correct? So you must know and, and approve of evolution. And she replied, parts of evolution, but I believe that God created us and also that he can create an evolutionary process that allows species to change and adapt. Mm-hmm. So is that theistic evolution then? Sounds like it from that statement. So she believes in evolution. It's just God is guiding the process. Right, well, more of an intelligent design with God being the designer. Palin says, no, she has a nuanced position. Which is remarkable because I don't think she's ever had a nuanced (laughs) position. Nuance and Palin don't really occur that often together. Yes, her supposed nuanced position is that she believes in microevolution, but she does not believe in macroevolution, which is – So like bacteria evolved? It would be that there could be change within a species. Right. But there would be no – change species couldn't evolve into other species right 
depending on who you're talking to, they would talk about kinds. Basics kinds would be their category rather than species. But she says it's a nuanced position basically to avoid stereotype that she's some mouth-breathing, illiterate, out from the sticks who, you know, Is who just really rejects. Is this really going to avoid that stereotype for her? <laughs> She's walking a line, though, because the, the way she has to boost that up so that she can then play to her base by saying, I stood up to that Schmidt guy, the McCain people who wanted right. to, yeah, which you know, look The implication was that the McCain campaign <clears throat> wouldn't have even chose her. There was her, a litmus test. Yeah, yeah. If which she was, I don't buy for a second. You're not cutting off the Republican base by taking on someone as a vice presidential nominee who doesn't believe in evolution. Well, I think the book, though, is the, the, the meta theme of her book, though, is, uh, is that the, the reason that the McCain thing imploded was is that they tried to, you know, that's the title, going rogue, was the, yeah. the term that the McCain, supposedly the McCain camp used about her. And so she wants to use that as her bona fides, like, look, I'm not scripted by these, you know, East Coast type Republicans. Right. I'm on right. the, the genuine deal. And so that had to fit within her narrative of, yes. of they tried to change me. Whether or not McCain would have would have still chosen her if she hadn't agreed to be quiet on the whole C-word thing, there is an independent account that, that confirms that she did indeed talk to Steve Schmidt about this uh, the day before she was announced as the nominee. Right. Uh, so other people witnessed this conversation too. She's not just grandstanding on this in, in her book. It was It was a real – question. Right. They but, but they do um, describe the scene very differently than Sarah Palin describes the scene, which is true throughout the book. These other biographers reported that she caved on the question, that she didn't. She didn't go rogue. She minimized her devotion to creationism and made it sound like she was more of a theistic evolutionist. And that she brought up, for example, that her dad was a biology teacher. And yeah, to support her own self, that she would have a good scientific background. Yeah. Well, we'll be hearing a lot more from her over the coming months and years. I think and I hope her political career is over. I mean, she's, she's made so many huge blunders. The talk is is that maybe she might even – some people think she might even realize that she doesn't have a chance for a presidential thing. Right. So what she's trying to do is just build up a lot a war chest where she can be kind of a power broker or maybe like a sort of an, an Oprah of the right. Or a pundit, yeah. And, and, and bankroll people and get a lot of chits for supporting people. But as you said – she knows who her audience is. And so her talk about using the dreaded C word before right. the McCain campaign plays in very well with that frame that we see coming from the anti-evolutionists time and time again. Mm-hmm. Behe has said it. Dembski has said it. Philip Johnson has said it. It's the idea that evolutionists are these dogmatic people who are not on the side of critical thinking. They don't want both sides to be heard, but there are these other people who are bold enough to stand up and challenge the position. It's Ben Stein's whole movie. Well, it wouldn't be out of the question to think that people who accept a naturalistic worldview could cling to their own views more than they should and not consider evidence that would contradict their own deeply held beliefs. So I guess the question is, is is there any data on this? Are evolutionists dogmatic in their belief in Darwin? And are creationists perhaps a little more open-minded, more willing to consider evidence that contradicts the mainstream? And Jamie, you have done that research. Right. Yeah, so there is existing research out there looking at dogmatism and fundamentalism. And as we all know, uh, fundamentalists tend to be more of the creationist types, whereas 
evolutionists tend to score a lot lower on the fundamentalism scale. So they have these really great reliable scales out there, but the question is, does this translate um, to more specific topics? Dogmatism has a popular meaning, but what is the when you measure dogmatism, what does it really Yeah, measure? the scales are basically just looking at how certain you are about your beliefs, the main beliefs you hold. You know, do you think there's some flexibility in thinking, there's room for that? So if you have agree more with that type of thing, that there's more flexibility, that you don't have all the answers right now, then you tend to obviously be less dogmatic. Or if you think you have all the answers, things you believe now will be the things you believe 10 years from now, nothing's going to change your mind, then you end up being more dogmatic. So a highly dogmatic person would be somebody who wouldn't be willing to give up their views with contravening evidence, they would stick right, with their Right, they would stick with views. it, despite the... So theoretically, you could, be a high, you could be a high dogmatic a creationist or evolutionist or a liberal or a conservative, it's it's the, the the content of dogmatism is neutral to what you happen to be. Right. right. Dogmatism is just the attitude you take mm-hmm. towards that information. It's not one position or another. How did you try to test this then? Basically, I categorize people as either evolutionists. So those are people who were basically theistic evolutionists, as you talked about before, also known as intelligent design. They believe in evolution, but that God started the process. And I also lump them together with naturalistic evolutionists. Um, and then the young and old earth creationists were lumped together. So, the, so the distinction would be that the, both evolutionists believe that, that a common ancestor, right. uh, whether God did it or whether it's natural that there's a common ancestor with all animals, whereas the creationists believe that, that humans were created separately no matter what the time scale was, whether it's 10,000 years or a million years, that, that we were always humans. Exactly. Okay. So each um, group were given a scenario opposite to their beliefs. So creationists were given this information, asked to suppose um, there was all this DNA and fossil evidence suggesting that there was a common ancestor between apes and humans. Just to suppose something yes, like that. To suppose yeah. For the sake of the argument. For the sake of the argument. And then they were basically asked a series of questions, and one of them was if any amount of evidence would allow them to change their existing views. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, the evolutionists were given information showing that there's no information or data to support naturalistic evolution, basically, that there's no DNA or fossil evidence showing any kind of transition or a common ancestor. So once they're given this scenario then, what type of questions did you ask them? Well, the main one that I asked, um, if there's any amount of evidence that would change their mind from their original beliefs to believing what the passage says. So any evidence at all. And there's a big difference there. So uh, the creationists, on the scale of essentially one to nine, they scored a um, four. So they slightly agreed that there's nothing that anybody could do to change their mind, whereas the evolutionists only scored a 2.8. So they were slightly disagreeing with that. You know, there are things out there that would change their minds. Mm. Mm-hmm. This is before they even read the scenario? Or no, this that's is after, they, oh, after, after, they, after read they read the scenario. But I also gave them other skills, too, like the fundamentalism scale and dogmatism scale. So the, the evolutionists were, were more conceding that there is evidence that, that conceivably that could change Exactly. Mind. So they were less dogmatic, the evolutionists by far. There's this strong relationship between dogmatism and fundamentalism, which has been shown in a lot of studies. Mm-hmm. Typically, there's the correlation of 0.6 or above, but I actually found a correlation of 0.75. That means that half of the, they share about half of their, exactly, their variance within it. Seven, so so what, that, what that mean was, that I guess that, that leads to the question, are these people, if the creationists are being rigid and not changing their views, is it because they're fundamentalists? Or is it because, is it the dogmatism that's driving it or some 
right. are those two things so closely related? That is, if you could find a religious person that was a creationist that wasn't a fundamentalist or wasn't dogmatic, you know, would that mean that they would be easier to change? But yeah, I did a discriminant analysis last night, and it looked like fundamentalism was by far driving this relationship and influencing whether somebody could be categorized as either a creationist or an evolutionist. So from this particular sample, at least, Mm -hmm. it would be okay to say that to some degree, the pretenses that creationists have to open-mindedness, you know, let's teach both sides, let's let people just decide on their own. They may be making that as a pitch to the government, as a pitch to the public, but that doesn't necessarily reflect their own patterns of thinking. Right. And other um, research by Altmeyer, he's actually the main researcher in dogmatism. When he looked at a variety of things like, okay, how does somebody organize their life around, like some kind of cause, like maybe animal rights or some kind of child's foundation or things like religiosity, that while there can be dogmatic individuals out there, of course, in all different types of groups, Mm -hmm. that those who organize their views around religion tend to be the most dogmatic. Yeah, we might see in really dogmatic atheists or something once in a while, but we have to go by group averages, and it's not showing that atheists or evolutionist types are very dogmatic at all. That was one of the controversies of his uh, that study that we talked about earlier on the show, the atheist study, uh, where he was what he Altemeyer yeah, study. Yeah, Altemeyer mm-hmm. Hunsberger had the book Atheists, a groundbreaking study of nonbelievers, right. where he went to the various groups, and one of the things that provoked controversy among the atheists was that he found that relative to agnostics, right. the atheists were more dogmatic. It was the same measure of dogmatism. Things like, I would need a lot of evidence if I were to give up my views. I wouldn't give up my views easily. That, that actually, um, you know, relative to the agnostics, the atheists were slightly higher in that. Some people mm-hmm. th- criticize that because it's like, well, some of them have changed their views already. They used to be mm-hmm. religious. Right. right. If they're not factoring in the amazing apostates in the group who've already flipped, well, these people have given a lot of consideration. It's it's not as if they've always just been atheists. And it was a relatively minor distinction that is compared, yes, the atheists were slightly higher in dogmatism than the agnostics, but relative to the religious sample that he had, it right. was just not even close. Right. Way lower in dogmatism. Yeah. Doesn't it kind of go without saying that agnostics are going to be less dogmatic than anyone? I mean, they're agnostics. Do they have a firm stance on sitting on the fence there? Yeah, I think a lot of the, 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 the other argument was that maybe agnostics uh, translate into a, a a different, it's a different type of question that is the nature sure. of knowledge itself is pr- more provisional. The agnostics were basically, we can't, a lot of them were, we can't know these things. Okay. It's unknowable, whereas the atheists were more willing to say, if there's no evidence of God, yes, we can know that there is no God. Sure. Well, and your data, even though people, people in the secular movement tend to identify as atheists the most, there's a lot of overlap between people who would identify as atheist yeah. and agnostic. So more or agnostic atheist. The same person in different contexts might use either term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're much more similar. I think the, the, the implication of some of the stuff that Jamie had, has done with some of my work, though, I think that w- what's interesting is that it, it, it goes towards a debate within our movement of should we make common cause with liberal non-fundamentalist religious people right. or should we, or, you know, that is the enemy is really conservative fundamentalist, not all religions, or should we take a stance against religion itself? You know, I think some of her data and the stuff that we had done earlier might say that it's, that the fundamentalism is more of an enemy or, you know, conservative religiosity is more of an enemy. It's the degree to which somebody's fundamentalist, not just simply being religious, that seems to correlate with things like unwillingness to give up views. Well, here's a skeptical question of your study, Jamie. If you're putting in theistic evolutionists Mm -hmm. and you're putting in, you know, naturalistic evolutionists, Mm -hmm. 
Well, theistic evolutionists already embraced the idea of God. So could they be artificially driving up that open-mindedness score? Mm. Perhaps if, we were to, if you were to isolate just the naturalistic evolutionists, maybe you would find that they weren't so open to changing their mind, but it's all these theistic evolutionists who they're, they're pretty much already believe in creation anyways. It's just God just used the mechanism of natural selection to drive it. Would it be all that difficult for them to change their mind? Right. No, I totally agree. I just didn't want to get too crazy with tons of different scenarios yeah. and mm-hmm. analyses. But yeah, that's yeah, a great critique. And how they were filtered was by the first question, because I categorized them into the four different human origins groups. But yeah, what determined whether they got the creationism or kind of pro-creationism stance or pro-evolution stance was whether they believed that they were humans in general are created as is versus evolved from other species. So, Is there any way with your current data to do the analysis and, and figure that out, or would it have to be a, a future study? Yeah, I think I could actually figure it out with my data. And I, it was showing it was kind of interesting with the progression there also. This is kind of not exactly what you're talking about. But I also categorized people as like kind of non, non-religious people. So I grouped the atheists and agnostics mm-hmm. um, together and then mm-hmm. spiritual people such as Buddhists and Wiccans, and then I had a lot of mainline people, of course, like 52%, um, Catholic, Methodist, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, and then conservative religion. So the Baptist, Pentecostal is non-denominational. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting, like, as you stepped up basically from one category to the next with none being on one side and then the conservative Christians being on the right-hand side, basically fundamentalism and dogmatism increased on the scales as you went across the category. Like in, in a linear fashion, just yes. kept on stepping yep. up? kept on hmm. stepping up for both of those variables, so it was pretty interesting. Because that relationship doesn't always work that way. We mm-hmm. saw with happiness, and we saw even with certain tests on, on morality. It's the far we, end. We found the curvilinear yeah. relationship where it was, yeah, the, the extremes both scored high. One of the problems in doing all didn't. this stuff is that, uh, and this is the part that really kind of bums me out is that the, when you look at the surveys of how many people actually believe in naturalistic evolution that are not intelligent design it's it's somewhere around like 10 percent i think gallops polls depending on, wh- on who you ask that is even if like you could say some of them say well 40 percent of people of you know believe in evolution so that's something but it might be micro evolution or, or or theistic yeah. or, in, or intelligent right that is the proportion of people that say we evolved from common ancestors over millions of years and it played out in a darwinian unguided. fashion unguided yeah. that's you're talking like Ten percent. Yeah, this data set, hmm. there was 12% who believed in naturalistic evolution. 61% were young or old earth creationists. Wow. And then intelligent design or theistic evolutionists wow. was yeah. 24%. Yeah. See, so. that's that's a bracing cold shower of well, reality. And, yeah, and looking, sure at, looking at it from that angle, it, it makes more sense to me now that you mm-hmm. would group in the theistic evolution with the naturalistic evolution types. Because that, that's the problem in any research in this yeah. thing is that you you have to get large numbers of people before you have enough people in that right. Because we're such a small anything. group. Yeah. It's, yeah. Just, it's, like, it's like rearranging deck chairs in the Titanic. Yeah. Oh, and I also categorized, I separated the non-religious people, the nuns, from the spiritualists because I saw there was a statistically significant difference on fundamentalism and dogmatism between Mm -hmm. the two groups. So that's why I kind of separated them out when I was... Thank you, because I'm sick of being lumped in with those people. (laughs) (laughs) Spiritual. What is that? We're on a a dwindling little ice keg on on a sea of something. (laughs) Now, now as a a sidebar to this discussion, and, and I think this is an important point to make, Am I the only one in the room who hates the term evolutionist? 
evolutionist, Darwinist, these terms really make my skin crawl. I, I feel like those terms are, are attempts to make us sound dogmatic. Particularly Darwinist. Especially Darwinist. But evolutionist, too, because I... You know, I I accept the theory of evolution. I don't believe the theory of evolution. I don't have faith in the theory of evolution. I accept it. Well, plus uh, he wasn't he didn't start evolution. Is his there's people that no 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 Darwin yeah. started it. Nothing evolved until Darwin came yeah. along. Even his you know, grandfather was an evolutionist. They just didn't have the mechanism of natural selection. Yeah. So and th- that was the thing about. Um, uh, ben Stein's movie Expelled that drove me nuts is how they kept keep referring to scientists as Darwinists. And I, I actually wanted to play a drinking game, but I think you'd die of uh, alcohol poisoning if you took a shot every time someone said Darwinist. But I, I, I don't like the term evolutionist or, or Darwinist. It feels like trying to classify us as a more dogmatic group by using those terms. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just being overly sensitive. I don't have a problem with evolutionists, but I can see what you're saying with the Darwinists for sure. Hmm. All right. Well, moving on, the Catholic Church is in trouble again. But luckily, this isn't for the same old thing, right? This is for what child sex abuse. I don't think this yeah, has come up with the Catholic Church before. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's something new in Ireland, no less. Who would and the Vatican? Well, yeah. Yes, we've talked about the Ryan report previously on the show mm-hmm. that came out in Ireland, uh, documenting numerous cases of sexual abuse. Well, now there's a new report. Out from the Commission to Inquire into the Dublin Archdiocese. It's a catchy title. Yeah, straight to the point. Mm-hmm. Their report has been recently released, and to quote a summary from The Telegraph in the UK, quote, The Commission has no doubt that clerical child sexual abuse was covered up by the Archdiocese of Dublin and other church authorities. The structures and rules of the Catholic Church facilitated that cover up. And that state authorities – this is you know, perhaps the newest thing and, right. and one of the more disturbing aspects. State authorities facilitated that cover-up by not fulfilling their responsibilities to ensure that the law was applied equally to all and allowing the church institutions to be beyond the reach of normal law enforcement processes. So this is no longer just the church covering it up. Now we actually have yes, state we have, officials who are helping with we this. Have, we have the local police force colluding in this. And several of the reports are very disturbing. They name bishop after bishop after bishop who knew about child abuse for years, and they're naming names here. They of people who are, by the way, mostly <clears throat> all dead by now. Yeah, well, didn't the yes, first one most, die like back in seventy three yeah, or something? Most, or? most of them. Yeah, most of these people can't even decades. see justice because they're they're already. Well, I can dead. imagine if you were the new archbishop, you probably got uh, you know as part of your job orientation, they're probably like, okay, listen, <laughs> here's some paperwork. With, see this file cabinet? This is all the ongoing allegations that you're going to have to deal with. So just you know, ignore here's, here's it. a steaming pile of yeah. paperwork. They knew about it, and they even in some cases, the article says Cardinal Connell was. Uh, trying to investigate this using secret canon law trials, which took place over a 30-year period and led to two priests being defrocked. Um, But even in these secret canon law trials, they're secret because they didn't have uh, the integrity to actually report them to the police. They were trying to take care of it in-house. Even these secret law trials were being opposed by others, uh, including Monsignor Gerard Sheely, they they say a powerful figure in the Catholic Archdiocese, uh, one of the largest in Europe, uh, actually fought to prevent these internal prosecutions. 
And not only were all these bishops aware of it, but even other Catholic religious orders such as the Columbans, the report says they had clear knowledge of these complaints dating back as early as the 70s. So they can't use the excuse anymore that, you know, they just weren't aware that we didn't know. child abuse was a problem. Right. You know, it took a while for them to actually mm-hmm. even wrap their heads around that this could be happening. Well, they clearly knew this was happening. Other details of the report, one priest admitted abusing more than 100 children. Um, another abused, the article says, on a fortnightly basis. Yeah, it was, it was every uh, – Every other week, he would have an, a kid that yeah. he abused. Yeah, uh, over his 25-year time. It's like Fish Fridays or something, you know. Ugh. Oh, God. Here, here's my thing with this one, though. It wasn't anything really spectacularly new, but it just sort of drives home that, that when you have an institution like that, it gets a pass. Yeah. And, and what other institution, like if, if there was like, you know, in Ireland, like a Jewish child care center or like, you know, a or, secular or public place, schools. Yeah, that you would have, you would have the, the, the proper channels followed. But it, I just, it, it invokes this sort of vision of like, you know, we'll handle this behind closed doors now. Yeah, we'll, you don't we'll need take to be care of this. Don't, don't you yeah. worry your head about it. Uh, the article talks about the, the police force getting reports of sexual abuse and then just going in and handing it over to the bishops. Just giving them the report, and then, and then they were done with it. The police didn't do right. any further investigation. Just so you know, one of your priests has been a- accused of sexual abuse, and then not doing anything more about it. It gotten so bad that the church had taken out. Uh, they'd started an, an insurance scheme that they set up for victims of the abuse. Right. This was back in 1987. So they were paying out money to these victims, like Michael Jackson. Basically, and uh, even the Vatican, the this inquiry sent requests for information to the Vatican um, because there had been reports of abuse that had been sent to the Vatican by the Dublin Archdiocese, mm-hmm. and this inquiry wanted to know what were in those documents, but the Vatican re- refused to uh, reply to this. You know, supposedly they're doing everything to crack down on this situation, but they right. wouldn't even supply the documents that were requested. The Vatican said the request had not gone through appropriate diplomatic channels. And so now, of course, all these victim groups looking at this report say, look, this is the Dublin Archdiocese. Let's do the same inquiry into the rest of the diocese in in Ireland. Mm -hmm. But Bishop Walsh of Dublin said, quote, he does not believe that should happen. He said it would be better for the church to use its time, energy, and money to improve child protection measures. Oh, yes. Like maybe getting rid of priests who are accused of child abuse. But now my question is, does this actually affect the Catholic Church at all other than some bad PR? Do they lose any followers when stuff like this comes out or do people just chalk it up to a few bad priests? I don't know. I mean, do, does it hurt their coffers? Does it, it, well, Financially, it does. I think that, that a, lot of, think well, so? a lot of the U.S. dioceses were going bankrupt because of all the money they were having right. to pay out. That plus the dwindling membership, but that they yeah. were paying out all kinds of money, which kind of bankrupted some of the uh, their ability to pay for it. It was diminished. So. But I don't think it's a stretch to say that this might be the most corrupt organization in human history. Their counter-argument is to say, as we've talked about before on the show, they say, well, look, every institution – Schools, for example, where children are involved are going to have some sort of rate of sexual abuse. And because they're so big. Right. Um, So let's not not make the Catholic Church out to be any worse than these other institutions. 
uh, where this happens. And, and they will go further than that sometimes and say, actually, the Catholic Church should be applauded for apologizing right. for these things and, and doing something about it. Um, but I was looking up statistics on this and was very shocked to find out what some of the data actually suggests. Uh, now, granted, this study that I'm going to quote here, um, uh, unfortunately, the lead author's last name is Bottoms. Uh, but yeah, at Bottoms. <laughs> somebody named Bottoms should not be researching child <laughs> abuse. I just or or let somebody else be the lead author. But Bottoms in 1995 was surveying cases of sexual abuse by clergy in the United States, mm-hmm. and this was Catholic and not Catholic, and one of them. I think mind-blowing statistics that came out of this was that Catholics, though being one quarter of the U.S. population, in reported cases of child abuse that involved religious authorities, 54% of the perpetrators were Catholic. Wow. So one quarter of the population um, equals 54% of the – over half of the abuse cases. Wow. And so that statistic right there contradicts what the Catholic apologists are saying. Mm-hmm. It is something that's related to this institution, to the Catholic Church. Not exclusively, at least in America. Certainly... And I would doubt that that data wouldn't be true elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Who knows? It might even be worse. Right. The other interesting fact that came out of this study was that his data, the 1995 data, did not support the view that boys were more likely to be targets of abuse. Um, Girls and boys were abused equally. You know, uh, as far as these preventative measures that the good Bishop Walsh said he wanted uh, the Catholic Church to spend its time, money, and energy on, mm-hmm. well, well, we know what some of those are. We've looked at that before, too. The Vatican was proposing screening all uh, applicants to the priesthood for homosexuality. Right. Because that's the way to prevent abuse. Right. Well, it doesn't even match what the statistics suggest. It's not just boys. It's boys and girls equally. And in fact, it's not even prepubescent children oftentimes. It's, it's older adolescent. Right. Yeah, there's young adults in the in the sexuality literature that uh, somebody's called not a pedophile but a, a febophile. If the person is attracted to below the age of consent, so whatever eighteen, but yet not pu- uh, above puberty, right. so you know whatever thirteen, fourteen, that that uh, like ultra boy age, that, that that those are um those people who target youths like that are called a febophiles. They have a preference for uh-huh. young young males, but not prepubescent males. Doesn't that mean, too, that they don't necessarily abuse, but they make advances or reveal somehow that they are... Typically, with the older the older the kid gets, obviously, the kids are getting bigger and more vo- verbal, too. So right. You can't they, just push them in a corner. Yeah. It's, it's, less right. fo- verbal, it's less physical force, but more things like verbal more coaxing and coercion. Seduction. And seduction, like yeah. you're grooming uh, of kids, you know. And, and if mm. you're a pedophile, though, that you don't distinguish. Often they don't distinguish between boys and girls. What right. they want is the, the 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 kid aspect. They don't necessarily like uh, the, what, what the church school that I went to. The principal was uh, was busted out for kids, and there was like an equal number of boys and girls over the years. Wow. The other interesting thing here was a study done back in 1974 by researcher Stewart came to the conclusion that, that these priests are, are oftentimes not mentally disturbed in any sort of way. They, tend, they know right from wrong, and they have control over their impulses. Uh, and so for a while, this was categorized as a – they called it a character disorder. It wasn't a mental disorder that was uh, driving people to do this abuse. 
And so the question is, what is it about the Catholic Church then? If this is clearly related to a particular institution, the incidence of it is higher, then mm. what is it about that institution? And the obvious answer that people always bring up uh, would be celibacy, the fact that right. they're required to be celibate. Schaefer in 1990 screened 1,500 Catholic priests over a 25-year period and over half admitted to breaking their celibacy vows. Does that require another person or is that (laughs) – I mean mean, (laughs) I'm honestly – Were they jerking the rosary is what you're asking? I mean I don't know if – is that part of a celibacy vow? I I imagine so because every sperm is sacred, right? I don't know how they categorize that. It depends on how the question was asked if they're explicit – yeah, I guess I guess I would have to go in and check, but I I took that to be some sexual relations of some sort. Yeah, yeah I mean, many um, many priests though have like th- that one in Florida last year was publicized because the the, the Cuban uh, Cuban American guy who had the, they right. caught him on the beach with a with a, a lot of them have female partners or even fathered children sure. on the side, you know. So the the, the pedophile cases are often make more headlines as far as breaking the the celibacy vows. A lot of priests also have. Hmm. have lovers on the side, you know, non-child lovers. Yeah, Yeah. sometimes those are parishioners. In fact, uh, 25% of pastors, so this is is a more general statistic, not just referring to the Catholic Church, Mm -hmm. but in the study Culver 1994, 25% of pastors had reported some kind of sexual involvement with a parishioner. Um, One-third of U.S. ministers admitted to having engaged in sexual misconduct as well. It's this, it's the put it's the kind of put you put the lid on too tight with people and don't lo- allow them an appropriate expression for their sexuality. It, it goes d- on right. the down low. Right. It, it goes uh, underground, and the person then eventually loses control over it because it's so, you know, yeah. frowned on. Yeah, there were other studies saying the same thing. They called it celibacy pressures, uh, and and that people would um, that there were very high reports of people exploring things sexually, sexual exploration. So sometimes it's consensual between different clergy. Two priests, a priest yeah, and a nun. Yeah, two priests, a priest and a, a nun, that sort of thing. two nuns, whatever. But the, the sad thing was is sometimes it wasn't. Um, right. Now, this is a quite a range, but somewhere between 42% and 77% of women clergy have claimed that they have been sexually harassed or abused that was also the Culver study and some others. So, so depending on which study you looked at, the number differed. But, but still, even if we take the low measure, 42% of women clergy being harassed or abused in some sort of way That's by other clergy members. There's also a selection bias here in that for a lot of people who struggle with issues of either homosexuality or, or attraction to kids, they go into an, a profession – Thinking that it is safe where they don't because, have to you know, deal with those. I want to be. Yeah. Right. I'm sinful. I'm going to go to hell. Oh wait, but if I'm celibate, what profession would allow me to be celibate? And then it'll be safe. Exactly. And so they off, they throw themselves into the arms of a, something that they think is going to be, you know, set for life that they won't. So ever you would be expect to see more impulses. homosexuals yeah. in the in the clergy um, than you would in the population at large. Yeah, but they yeah. Th- they think it will be the solution to their problems, but it just ends up putting the lid on too tight. You know, it's yeah. it's water behind the dam. It's going to blow at some point. You know. Anyways, this report is obviously not telling us anything that we didn't already know, but it's reaffirming the fact that we need to keep pressure on these people. The apologists continually try to avoid responsibility. They continually try to make it out as if it's not 
a bigger deal with the Catholic Church than it is with any other institution, and they're wrong. Are we going to have Bill Donahue on next week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. let's get Bill Donahue oh, and see what he has faxes, to say about it. Complaining about us. Uh, so clearly, there are moral lapses within the Catholic Church. But what about with Jesus Himself? Now, on on our last episode, DJ Grothy was on, and, and he made reference that that he believes himself to be more moral than Jesus. And, and Jeremy, you and I both um, agreed that that was probably the case. And we had a bunch of listeners saying, well, what the heck does he mean? What, what are the moral teachings of Jesus that you think are immoral? So I guess uh, this week we'll take a look at some of those. Judging Jesus. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. DJ had issues with Jesus' morality. A lot of, we should say that a lot of skeptics don't. Right. A lot of skeptics and humanists don't have any problem acknowledging that Jesus is some great moral figure. Even Gandhi said what, um... I like your Christ, but I don't know about your Christian. I do not. Yeah, exactly. There's a humanist author that I like quite a bit, Corliss Lamont, I think, is how you pronounce it. I'm not always good at, at the French pronunciations. Brett Favre. <laughs> <laughs> but he wrote, he wrote in his book, Philosophy of Humanism, he wrote that the Gospels have much to offer any generous and humane ethical philosophy. Running through them is a radically democratic spirit, a deep equalitarian feeling, that has been the inspiration of numberless workers for a happier mankind. Jesus raised his voice again and again on behalf of humanist ideals, such as social equality, the development of altruism, the brotherhood of man, and peace on earth. The Jesus portrayed by the Gospels represents one of the supreme personalities of all time. So that's a pretty ringing endorsement yeah, sure. from a very important Free thinker, even Jefferson cut, cut out all the supernatural stuff, but kept a lot of the sayings of Jesus because he thought they were so moral. He yeah, just, Jefferson was definitely a, he he called himself a Christian and that he was a follower of Christ. He didn't believe in the divinity of Christ, but he did believe in the the teachings. Yeah, he thought the teachings were easily distinguished. I'm quoting now by their luster from the dross of his biographers, and as separate from that as the diamond from the dunghill. That's right. Hmm. So, I guess a lot of secular humanists, a lot of free thinkers might agree with that notion. What would Jesus do? Maybe that's a good question to ask if he's such a good moral teacher. Mm -hmm. But for this counter-apologetics, we're going to actually take a look at that. Is Jesus a good moral teacher? Even if you don't accept that he's God, might he still stand as one of the greatest moral teachers of all time? And I'd just like to address some of those things in that Lamont quote. Number one, the, the brotherhood of man. You know, it's the racially cool hippie Jesus. Right. Jesus uh, loved all the children of the world, red, yellow, black, and white, right? He's, he's totally cool. He's open with everybody. He embraces the brotherhood of man. Even racial stereotypes. Yellow? Really? Come on. Well, we talked about this one already, actually, on episode 42, Onward Christian Soldiers. Um, we attempted to show that the Jesus of the Gospels is not the racially cool hippie Jesus that mm -hmm. we were taught to admire. He called the Canaanite woman a dog. He said he was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He does commend the faith of some Gentiles, but we argued it was mainly just to shame other Jews. 
And even after his death, the apostles need an additional revelation from heaven before they even think it's okay to associate with non-Jews. Right. So that one's already taken care of. If you want to hear more detail, check it out in episode 42. Uh, what about peace on earth? What about the pacifist Jesus? Well, anybody who's read the Gospels knows that Jesus tends to preach a, a nonviolent message as far as the behaviors and actions of his followers are concerned. You have Matthew chapter 5, Sermon of the Mount, begins with, blessed, yeah, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. You have those other passages, the antitheses passages in the Sermon of the Mount, where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other one. You've heard, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That sounds pretty good. Very peaceful. (laughs) And even the pacifist notion in Matthew, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they are cornered by the Roman authorities, one of his followers pulls out a sword and Jesus says, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Definitely you get that picture of the pacifist side of Jesus. And it, it's not at all surprising that people would refer to him as the Prince of Peace. Right. But what is not as often emphasized are a bunch of other verses that contradict that. So, for example, we were just talking about the put your sword away. Those who take the sword will perish by the sword. Well, in that same story, in Luke's gospel, Luke 22, verse 36, right before that story, Jesus tells them they should get a sword. And if they don't have a sword, the one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one. Arm yourselves, men. And it's interesting in that Luke version of the story, they still have the scene. They still have the scene of the disciple pulling the sword out. He even cuts off the ear of one of the people who are there to arrest Jesus. Hey, they put he puts the ear back on though. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Super glue will In do the Luke version, anything. yeah, Jesus fixes everything. He's like, "Here, let's take care of that ear and, and puts it back together." Dusts it off. But Jesus says, "I've had enough. You know, put the sword away." But he doesn't say the whole take the sword, live by the sword, die by the sword. Right. Kind of he thing. doesn't say yeah. that at all. Um, instead his his disciples are given instructions that they should be they should be carrying weapons. Matthew 10, verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's the one that, that comes to mind. Right. That's one of the more well, relatively well-known ones, but a lot of these other ones are, are ones that are just sort of not emphasized. Like people selectively right. emphasize the nicey-nice ones, uh, except for sometimes you'll get like people who are very like end times and, and – you know, like the Tim LaHaye sort of uh, right. left behind Jesus. Right. They say, no, no, Jesus is actually judgmental and vengeful, and then they then they trundle those out. Right. But most people, like, you know, th- don't refer to those. And when, when you look at Jesus' parables, you see some of the worst instances of this. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus often refers to himself in these parables, and it's always clear from the context when he's doing that. But in Luke 19.27, uh, Jesus is represented as the king, and there's several people who uh, who do not believe Jesus, and it, and he says, "But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence." That's pretty hardcore. Yeah, that's us. Yeah, that is us. Aww. <laughs> he mentioned us. It's like Obama in his inaugural. It's a shout out. <laughs> well, except if Obama would have said, "Bring yes, bring them up and." Uh, 
killed him in front of the Capitol. L- yeah. uh, in Luke 20, when he's the cornerstone, Jesus says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. All right, so, so what is it? Is it the first set of verses? Is it the peace and forgiveness, Jesus, or is it the judgment and damnation, Jesus? The WWF, Jesus. Now, this is an argument within the Jesus scholar community, too, because a lot of them want to emphasize a social justice Jesus, like John Dominic Crossline emphasizes nicey, nice Jesus, whereas a lot of the apocalyptic ones want to emphasize that Jesus was just a short-term apocalypticist, and to be an apocalypticist, you have to say things are going to come back and God's going to kick some ass when he comes back, and then there's going to be a lot more... And I think the apocalyptic version is the one that's the most credible to me. But, I mean, they argue amongst themselves at the, right. at the seminars and the conferences about— What did the historical Jesus uh, Did teach? Jesus really represent something that, that was a social justice type thing and he meant for this to go on and on and on? Or was he just talking, these times are going to end very soon right. and it's going to get ugly and it's going to get right. bad? And so, Well, the question as to what the historical Jesus taught is, is an open one. But as far as the Jesus that we read in the Bible— I think it's pretty clear that his message is an apocalyptic one. And I think when you look at it from that perspective, these verses on peace, which seem to conflict, actually make a whole lot more sense. Right. Because Jesus is not advancing peace or forgiveness in, in the sense of, of tolerance, openness, learning to live with one another and compromise, work together on shared values, that kind of thing. What Jesus is preaching as kind of a... Um, Peace for the moment. Judgment is around the corner. The kingdom is going to be established, and then God will get his wrath. And if you look at, like, some of the earliest Christian writings we have are from the Apostle Paul. That's the exact same notion that you get from him. So Romans 12, verses 17 through 19, Paul says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So yeah, it's peace, but it's peace because the end of the world is coming very soon, and God God is going to kick ass then. They'll get their comeuppance. In other places, Paul uh, is pretty clear that he believes that things are not going to, that that the end is going to happen fairly soon, right? I mean, so was Paul an apocalypticist too? And that, yeah. That he thought that the end, that, you know, things won't last that much longer. I think it's I'm pretty right. agreed that he is. Yeah. Um, some of the only epistles of his that stray away from that apocalyptic view uh, are also the ones that are the most doubted to be credible letters so in, of Paul. In any movement here, you have the figure, whether it's Jesus or Paul, that has a more kind of raw early quality to it. And then as things after the death of these people uh, or they're out of the out of commission that the followers have tried to like you know we might be in this for longer than what we figured yeah. and then try and to then make they it a more have workable, to revise a more workable set of rules for the group after a couple of generations have gone by and it's become clear that this isn't going to end in the time span that that we believed then we have to adjust and say okay no, 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 no. peace right i think that's why some of these passages are so difficult for christians is because they really only make sense in that earlier context right So like when Jesus notoriously in Luke 14 says, if you do not hate your father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, you cannot be my disciple. Well, that makes sense if the end of the world is coming and you're clinging to family and everything else and you're not preparing for the coming apocalypse. If the apocalypse isn't right around the corner, 
then why is Jesus telling people not to settle down and raise families and everything else? That doesn't make any sense. The same thing with sell all your possessions and give to the poor. Or what you'll find in, in the Sermon on the Mount, anyone who asks money from you, give it, give it to them. I mean, how could you practically live in the world like that? I wish more Christians did <laughs> because we live in the town of DeVos. And, uh, well, see, I've had people say that before that have tried to defend it from a, like a conservative mindset that a lot of the anti-poverty and equality stuff Jesus just meant for that time and for that his immediate so disciples. That stuff it, uh, and and yeah. so he didn't mean for everyone to do that forever because, like you said, it would be unworkable. But that they actually use that as a defense of not following the love and turn-in-cheek teachings because they say it was only meant for those people at that time. Well, to a certain degree, I think I would agree with them. I mean, sure. I, it's their God. It's their, it's their Messiah. So it is kind of a cop-out. But I think if you, if you look at it, it, it makes sense. If, if the world's going to end, what do you need your money for? It's like, not that Jesus has a problem with possessions or material goods, right? He's always promising them treasure. Oh, you're going right. to get treasure in heaven for doing this. Your reward will be great for doing that. It's more like, okay, we're, we're keeping this in the, in the kingdom's bank account, but this money that you have right here, right now, you're not going to need because it's all going to be burnt up. It's all going to be destroyed. It's just like the uh, 2012 guy we talked about on the last episode where Michael Shermer said, what do you need all your stuff for if you believe the world's going to end? Just give it to your wife who's divorcing you. It, it's a short-term plan. If you believe that the world is going to end soon, then give us money to take care of your pets after the uh, the rapture kind of thing, you know? Well, and it's, incidentally, that is what DJ's criticism that he shared with us on the last episode was all about. Right. Uh, DJ brought up the fact that uh, Jesus advances uh, what he called a token economy. Hmm. The motivation for doing right and wrong isn't out of some sort of deeper principle. It's, it's oftentimes carrot and stick stuff. Reward and punishment is, serves as the moral underpinnings of of his of his message. Well, another case that's often made by by Christians, I think that are I think somewhat naive or don't have any sense of history, is that only Jesus could come up with some of these teachings, you know, like the golden rule and such. And they right. totally ignore that this right. has arisen in many cultures, you know, Confucian before and completely Buddhists separate and, of yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and that and also things like. Um, that there were Stoic and Cynic philosophers that were walking around traveling and saying very right. similar to things, especially to the sort of Q gospel Jesus of of poverty and equality. Right. right. Or or that notion of the poor and the marginalized. You can find that statement that Jesus makes, it's the sick that need a physician. You can find that in the writings of, of many of the Greco-Roman moralists. Mm-hmm. You can find similar teachings like the Golden Rule. You can find that in rabbinical schools. But I do think... You know, rather than just take a dump on Jesus the entire time here, <laughs> if we were going to say something good about his message, I think that is one of the good things you can find. Sure. Is that I think he does legitimately – Look out for the poor? Yeah, the poor and, and these marginalized, these outcasts in society. He will spend time with them. He will heal them. Um, he doesn't reject them. And that is significant because if you look at other messiahs of the time – or if, even That's if you look case, at like yeah. the Qumran community who were also apocalyptic Jews, um, the, the Essenes that lived there, mm-hmm. they followed these very strict purity codes. Anybody who had a deformity or a sickness, it was thought of as sin. They were thought of as unclean and they would be ostracized by the community. And there is 
reason to believe that many of the, the mainstream religious traditions at the time also treated these people as, as outcasts, and Jesus does not. And so I think if we are going to credit him as being a good teacher in any area, it would be in that one. But as Luke brought up, that doesn't make him one of the greatest moral leaders of all time. Yeah, right? And I think rather than there's this tendency to focus on who the person is rather than, than testing what they say in regards to, uh, you know, an external criteria. That is, are these things that Jesus said, even though it's a mixed bag, the, one, the good ones at least, are those good because he said them or are they validated because they have external, you know, the fruits rather than right. the roots. Any type of philosophy, I mean, you could say that Socrates' philosophy is moral because it's testable. It doesn't matter that it came from Socrates. Right, He's right. just some ugly, yep. dead Greek guy. That, that <laughs> you know, but that are these things validatable from some sort of ethical point of view? And I think that's where n- non-religious people, the point that we make is, yeah, maybe some of the teachings attributed to Jesus are good, but they're, like Sam Harris puts it, they're often set in a thicket of all these other things that you mm. have to hack through to get to the good ones. Right. Um, I mean, the Bible itself has a lot of good morals, but yeah. would I say that the, the book itself is a moral instruction manual? Absolutely not. But to avoid becoming authoritarians and just following stuff because this book or that guy said yes. it, we have to test things independently and teach things like ethical reasoning. And, you know, why is it that something is good or bad? Right. It's not because Jesus said it. So what would Jesus do? What, what is our final evaluation on the, the morality of this character? Is he a good moral teacher? I think at best you can say, really, he's, it's, it's a mixed bag. Yes. Although uh, if you're there's a fake some... tree, you're screwed. That's true. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to end this week with A Stranger Than Fiction. Iraq offers incentive to intermarry. Uh, This comes to us from the USA Today. The Iraqi vice president, Tariq al-Hashimi, has an unusual proposal to mend some of Iraq's sectarian woes. He offers mixed couples a $2,000 gift if they get married. Before the U.S. invasion, says USA Today, intermarriage between Shiites and Sunnis was fairly common. As sectarian fighting ripped apart the country, intermarriage became a rarity. Now that the security situation is relatively calm, relatively being the operative (laughs) word there, the Iraqi government wants to nudge couples of mixed sects, that's with a CTS, to get hitched, hoping that will repair the relationship between Iraqis' majority Shiite and minority Sunni populations. They also talk about they're giving less money to same-sect couples. (laughs) Same-sect marriage, yeah. I think we should have had like a fake color and saying, I want to protest your same-sex thing. (laughs) That's sect thing. Oh. Allah would not approve of same-sex marriage. Never mind then. No, it's same-sect. Although opposite-sect marriage (laughs) gets um, gets you a bigger cash reward. I got to say, romance is not dead. Well, I could marry her and get $700, or I could marry her and get $2,000. Oh, like that doesn't happen here. The, yeah, <laughs> uh, no kidding. The, the Iraqi version of The Bachelor is really quite good, I have to say. I think this is a good idea. I mean, I think it's kind of, on the surface, it sounds very superficial and even right. shameful. But, but as as far as a social engineering perspective, I mean, if you want to take care of these situations long term, 
get them to intermingle. And diplomats have known this forever. You know, kings kings and monarchs used to marry the daughters of of other kings and stuff to solidify relationships between nations and everything else. But the situation being what it is, is this setting these couples up for danger? Well, they, I mean, are they are they a target? When, if when they the are when the intersect uh, the intersect strife was peaking, like a couple of years ago, the, there was a lot of stories of like people that had married before when things were bad before the invasion, right. you know, being ripped apart because of yes. you know extended family hated the other extended family and they had to like separate and they were you know guys living in a neighborhood of his wife's neighborhood that was afraid for his life. So it was a real thing where uh, you know they were screwed basically uh, if the whole place was balkanizing along factional lines. Right, and right. it was pretty dangerous to be in a mixed marriage. But now that it's relatively calm, <laughs> as they say. Well, we know that they can exist in harmony. They did before under sure. Saddam Hussein. So how much of that was just his iron fist keeping everything? Ahmed, right. I brought a drill over. You're going to drill my head? No, for to build your cabinet. What did you think I was going to do with the drill? Oh, I thought you were going to drill me in the head. <laughs> no, not anymore. <laughs> wow. It's a variable speed. I, I wasn't saying he was a good man. <laughs> I was saying we have precedent for believing that mixed Shia and Sunni couples can, they can coexist. Work. They can work. Yeah. So then the that, radicals are kept in check, and hopefully that'll happen. Yeah. Uh, on a um, sillier note, I suppose we have a song. A rap, in fact, from a Christian rap group. One of many Christian rap groups. An all-white Christian rap group. I believe they all are. Um, This was a viral video on YouTube. Here it is, the Christian side hug. falls into, and we were discussing before we started recording, uh, couldn't come up with the name of the law, but the law that says that... Um, any any true statement from a fundamentalist is indistinguishable from a parody of a fundamentalist? <laughs> yeah. Because this one, Jeremy, you sent out this video, and I... You didn't believe I it didn't was believe real. Well, it's, it's from still... a real event. I mean, clearly there's, there's a large group of people there at this concert, but it's hard to imagine that this is a real thing. But... Yeah, it in fact is. So they're right? trying to evade well, sexual temptation by not hugging in a face to face. Because genitals will line up that way. That's right. Yeah, well, you yeah. might you might graze a breast through clothing or you know something. Pelvises might make contact. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. That's... You got to nip it in the bud. I mean, you have to take care of these temptations as soon as they come up. Right by being obsessed with sex. Right. Absolutely. When I was um, in in uh, Christian high school. 
one of my religion teachers, and and even he thought this was ridiculous. But he had a a book that had that had instructions for Christian dating, including rather than kissing goodnight, you should read Bible passages to one another. <laughs> And this, uh, I mean, this. We, we just, have a friend. We have a mutual friend, Jeremy, and I know this guy who would pray before he made out with his girlfriend. They would, they would have a prayer together. That they're making. Did he also out, weep after maybe premarital maybe sex? Maybe that they're making out wouldn't go too far. That they're making out would be blessed. <laughs> well, hopefully, they're not reading scripture from like Song of Solomon exactly. or something like that. I mean, that's that's hot. I would pray before I made out too, but it wasn't the <laughs> yeah. same type of thing. <laughs> Pick a fertility god. All right. My my issue with this song is that that lyric, I'm a rough rider <laughs> filling up with God's love. All right. Unless that's a reference to Teddy Roosevelt, which I have no reason to believe it is. Yeah, the only other thing I can attach to rough rider is a studded condom. So yeah. do they mean to use a a semen-filled condom <laughs> as an analogy oh, for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? I, I can't I, imagine I don't they do. Think, I think what that's more likely is going on is they're just parroting something they've heard in other rap Absolutely. lyrics with Filling no with knowledge. It's always been vaguely sexual anyway, <laughs> hasn't it? Oh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah that's, this is true. Well, they didn't check out UrbanDictionary.com. <laughs> no. No, no one does. I was the, showing the, I was the showing whole this tea bag movement would have be yeah, entirely they, they different. Have, there's there's an, should be another law that Christians will inadvertently always use some sort of slang or term that's un- yep. unintentionally <laughs> filthy. I was showing a video the other day on the silver ring thing. You know those chastity movements yeah. where you give the ring. Oh, and, the pro- and they had or, yeah. yeah, and they showed like a, a sound and light presentation with lasers. It was like you know trying to make it cool to the kids, but they had a, like a rap video where they were like you know if even if you use a condom, you can, and it was like right. I mean, but it was like you could get genital warts in it. And <laughs> the class just, they were on the floor laughing with that. And I had to like stop the video because they, you know, and I'm like, give them a break, guys. You ever tried to rhyme something with like chlamydia in a rap song? It's impossible. Wow. You rhyme something with genital warts. Do you ever have students who have one of those rings? Because I yep. was talking about abstinence only programs and I brought up the ring thing and somebody said she had one. And yep. It's helpful to her. It's helpful? Yeah. How is it helpful? I don't know. It just reminds her. Because you totally can't get laid when you have one of those on. I'm sorry, a ring cannot block a hole. There's no uh, maybe oh. they should have a, an Opus Day ring that has spikes oh. in it. See, uh. she has my friend on Facebook, and she, I declined her, but yeah, she has on there how she's never touched a boy. Like that's on her. <laughs> it's on her profile as a challenge or <laughs> what? It's either she's a warning or a challenge or a little bit of both. Wow, wow. Okay. <laughs> That's going to do it for for us this week. And, of course, thanks to you, Jamie, uh, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. It's always nice to have a special guest in studio with us. It, I, I think, in theory, keeps us on our best behavior, although... In practice, that's never happened. <laughs> <laughs> I it made it worse. We'll be back in two weeks with a special episode um, about free thought parenting. And that uh, will be breaking format a little bit for that one. It's my own exploration into uh, my newfound role as a godless parent. Dave's doing that because he's the only one that's successfully parented. I, well, successful, I don't know yet. I've, yeah, I was going to say. Provisional. <laughs> All um, knowledge is provisional, and th- so is parenting. There we go. Um, yeah, so that episode will be coming out in a couple of weeks, and then we'll have a few weeks off because we have uh, solstice coming up. Or Christmas or human light. Have you heard of, about human light? Uh, uh, no. I thought we were breaking for Kwanzaa, man. 
and, and Kwanzaa. Um, so we'll be off and we'll be coming back uh, in the beginning of January with some more new episodes. Until then, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.